HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Greenhorns Radio. I'm your host, Severin. It is Tuesday, and today we are joined by Brianna Bowman, who is an incubator coordinator across the nation and a wonderful woman. And um, welcome, Brianna. Thank you. I'm very happy to join you today. So um, as per the usual, Greenhorns Radio was interested in the people in, in, of the movement and by the movement and what they're doing and why. And Maybe you could just give us a little introduction to yourself and how you arrived at the work of supporting incubator farms in this country. Sure. So I guess I'll start just by talking a little bit about the work that I do, and then it's been a bit of a meandering path, so I can spend a bit of time talking about how I got there. How does that sound? That sounds good. Okay, perfect. Um, So the work that I do right now is with the New Entry Sustainable Farming Project based in Massachusetts. We're an initiative of Tufts University, and I coordinate the National Incubator Farm Training Initiative. So we provide ongoing training and technical assistance as well as support through resources and events um, to the staff of beginning farmer training projects across the country. Um, And we specifically work with incubator farms and... um, The goal of our work is really to improve outcomes for farmers that choose to go through an incubator farm training, so how to ensure that they're graduating well-equipped to be successful farm business operators. Um, Okay, I realize that we should step back for a moment and explain what is a farm incubator, because I I live in a world where that's so obvious, but maybe not everybody listening does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. 
So um, an incubator farm is one of many options available to people who are interested in pursuing a career in agriculture. It's a little different from some of the options out there like an internship or apprenticeship because it's a style of training that's really designed for people who may have already had experience in agriculture and have decided that it's what they want to pursue um, as their livelihood. So incubator farm projects technically are uh, defined as land-based multi-grower projects that provide training and technical support to new farmers. Uh, So generally, you're looking at a situation where there's shared infrastructure and equipment. There's usually a farm manager who's available to provide ongoing technical assistance. And each of the participants on an incubator farm are given a small parcel of land. Uh, Typically, it's around a quarter acre on which they're able to actually incubate their own independent farm business. So as a prerequisite for many of these programs, you have to write a farm business. Uh, Many organizations have kind of a training opportunity in advance of getting on the land where you can work with someone to develop a business plan. Uh, So really geared towards people who are serious about farming professionally um, and looking to enter farming in kind of a more low-risk environment where if if for whatever reason you decide to step away from farming, you haven't already taken out the loan and bought the equipment and signed a lease. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, well, my experience with incubators has been that we've done a lot of events for Greenhorns and FarmHack, and Weed Dating was on the farm incubator of Common Ground Farm in Maine. They have mm-hmm. an incubator project, and we did a FarmHack event on the incubator in Ann Arbor, and mm-hmm. um, I went out and filmed in the um, one of the people from Alba out in California, which is another sure. farm incubator. So. There's actually a lot of incubators around the country. I don't know how many, but you probably do. (laughs) I do know how many. Um, There are over 200 incubator farms in operation across the country, and that number is only growing. So part of what we do at NIFTY, uh, which is our adorable acronym for the Incubator Farm Training Initiative, is we provide technical assistance, like I said, to projects that are really in the startup phase. So let's say you have a parcel of land, you have a passion for training in it, generation of beginning farmers, you can reach out to Nifty and we'll help you walk through kind of the nuts and bolts of what it means to set up a beginning farmer training program that is preparing people for success. And yeah, so we've seen the number of incubator farms across the country grow significantly from just around 50 recorded when we started this work uh, in a pilot phase in 2012 to, as I mentioned, upwards of 200 today. And it's really amazing to see the diversity within these programs. So some offer a really strong structured educational component where some are pretty laissez-faire. And the populations that are served also vary widely. So you see projects serving immigrant and refugee communities, uh, projects serving kind of younger people just out of college or fresh out of apprenticeships. And then another exciting group of folks who are kind of the mid-career professionals that have decided that they are fully disillusioned by the office life and want to kind of pursue an agricultural career um, in the dusk of their kind of professional experience. Wow. I feel like uh, I was just put in my mind, I was just visiting the wonderful incubator farm in Providence that started by the um, East Side Community, East Side Community Land Trust. Yeah, the South Side Community Land Trust. South Side. Yeah. 
They're amazing. Their programs are so comprehensive. I admire their work greatly. And they're and I feel like they've been of... doing it for a really long time in a in an urban context, like making urban land available for community food security purposes. Yeah, so a lot of the incubators that we work with in our network are peri-urban or, well, I mean, mostly peri-urban, so just outside some sort of big population center. Um, but I, I mean, I have huge respect for folks that are doing the work in an urban setting because there's so many, you know, different obstacles to overcome when it comes to pressure on the land and regulations, things like that. Well, it's very good idea um, when we're thinking about this work and detailing how the programs are elaborating themselves that are dedicated to the great grand cultural project of growing another generation of land stewards to think about all the different ways that that can happen and what how that can be most effective and coordinated and ensure that the dollars that are spent doing that work are well spent and that the practitioners who are involved are practicing well and that the people who are benefiting are benefiting. And I wonder, um, where did this model come from? And what do people who are participating in it say about why they are motivated to participate in the being basically mother hens to a clutch of young chickens? Interesting question. So I think that the origin of the incubator farm is kind of blurred, but I can speak uh, a little bit about New Entry's origin because we were one of the first incubator farm projects in the country in partnership with Alba, who you mentioned as well. Um, so the origin of New Entry was really a focus on newly arrived immigrants and refugees, so kind of doing a general inventory of people who were living on the margins of society and thinking, how can we fully integrate them in a way that honors their own cultural and social history? And agriculture was a no-brainer for many of these folks. Um, and this is something that I've seen firsthand before I even knew what an incubator was, working in refugee communities that focused on pre-employment, that diverted people into really bizarre kind of culturally inappropriate spaces like meatpacking plants or, you know, hospitals or places that didn't honor their past at all. And so asking the question, you know, when you go around a table, where, you know, where do you come from and what did you do there? A lot of these folks uh, at New Entry were saying, you know, we came from Cambodia and we have a history in agriculture. So New Entry was founded to provide opportunity for these farmers. And it kind of made sense, like the pathway from uh, training towards independent operation, just because I think that's how we've always thought about farm progression. So you learn how to farm, you take over the farm, you manage and potentially grow the farm, and you pass it on to someone else who does it. So I think the linear idea of incubator farms as places where you generate independent farm businesses started kind of in the refugee world um, and has since grown. So at New Entry, we opened our programs up um, just under 10 years ago to really anyone that was interested as more people became interested in farming and have since seen a large shift in the population that we serve. Um, and in that time, not related to the shift in uh, demographic, but we've been around long enough to identify what may be some you know, flaws in the model as well. So part of what I was thinking about when you were asking, you know, what do people in the field think? You know, what are, 
what's on the kind of tip of our tongues and how are we pushing the envelope uh, in this model that has been around now for 20-odd years. Um, it's really exciting to see people questioning whether that linear structure is the best for our farmers. So we know that farmers from our programs graduate into a pretty harsh environment where it's hard to access the capital you need to get started. Many people are averse to debt in the first place. Land is incredibly expensive. If it's available at all, we see consolidation and threatening our ability to access land in the first place. Um, so when we do find a piece of prime farmland, at least in New England, it's something of a godsend. And then generally, like, issues managing a business. A lot of people who have this dream to farm don't visualize themselves as entrepreneurs. So asking, you know, how do we model graduation from the incubator and the structure of the incubator program in a way that best serves these kind of evolving issues that we see in a new generation of farmers that might not have come through traditional pathways to ag. And I think one of the answers to that question is something that's actually being modeled by a refugee project um, active in Maine. So Cultivating Community um, is an excellent organization doing great work um, with the Somali Bantu population in Maine. Um, and they just formed a cooperative or assisted in the formation of a cooperative farm um, with some of their graduates. So we see people taking this one farmer, goes through training, graduates, and makes one farm business, turning into replicating the supportive environment of an incubator by graduating people into cooperatives. And that's just one of the ways that I think the model has changed. And one of the things that's really exciting for people to talk about as we envision how to deal with some of the challenges that new farmers face. Well, as you were saying that, my little... Um eight ball of a brain bopped up two different things. One is that the interesting um, kind of socially progressive and experimental programs of the New Deal, which did a whole bunch of different configurations of resettlement mm -hmm. and settlement projects. Mm -hmm. um, and another one was uh, how the palette of the palette of experiments in such training and restoration of skill and um, habilit 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 rehabilitation of rural communities has actually been attempted not only in the New Deal but, you know, all over world history. And it strikes me in my world of the young farmer movement how often we get stuck in a pattern or a template or a solution that almost feels like branded and is a one is not to say, oh, incubators are one thing and stop selling me an incubator, dear foundation world. However, I would make the argument that um, there is an inadequate palette of um, experimentation and that mm -hmm. adaptive and and responsive and intuitive and opportunistic ways of approaching this problem are necessary, number one. Number two, it might not be possible, given the systemic challenges that are facing agriculture, for us to throw a bunch of young chickens at it. But right. anyway, that's another large systemic problem that's that I am like, wondering about. That's my big that keeps me up at night. I'm not, not much does, but that, <laughs> that, like, I think that sort of the ethic of... I think there's progress to be made on multiple fronts, and I think it has to happen, like 
parallel. I don't think we can isolate anything. I just think that, you know, there is obviously, I mean, at this juncture in American farming, as you well know, like, we need new farmers. Farmers are aging out of the profession. And I, I think there are so many ways that we can move forward. And I think our, oh, the onus of, that's upon me and upon NIFTY and upon the work of beginning farmer training organizations is just to make sure that we're doing the absolute best job that we can to make sure that the people we're graduating have a fighting chance, knowing full well that like they're up against a lot. And I think it's our responsibility to communicate that as well. I mean, I have such sincere and deep admiration for anyone that decides to be a farmer. I mean, knowing all this, and I, it is possible to succeed, and it's it's certainly not easy. And so I think... Um, this is reminding me that we skipped away from your personal life story, and <laughs> it also reminds me that my third Magic 8-Balls thing was how much in the countries where I've been lately swirling through over here on the other side of the Atlantic thanks to my wonderful do-lecture flights and a little bit of avoiding email during the day. <laughs> I have been very much enjoying learning about European farm policy and mm. how much focus there is on associations and growers' associations mm. and um, essentially creating a cooperative framework for producers, be they cheese or honey or mead or sausage, producers to work together cooperatively such that they can share the infrastructure and administration work it takes to bring that product through its entire production cycle and add value and have branding and, you know, get the connections to the restaurants and everything through the whole supply chain. And um, there's a really interesting project in Washington State in the Skagit Valley that went from being an incubator farm to basically being a cooperative um, marketing, like basically they started a distribution company for all the yeah. farms and they use their grant money to pay for the person to hustle all the vegetables for the farmers mm -hmm. and be on the phone all day hustling the vegetables. Mm -hmm. And another thing I learned about in Michigan was that Michigan has the highest proportion of minority farm operators in the country of new and of the highest proportion of new entry minority farm operators, and that's a lot of times in specialty crops because Michigan is so good at asparagus and sweet corn and blueberries, and that there's a lot of the reason that that's happened has been because of cooperative growers' associations that market blueberries and other specialty crops for new immigrants. Whatever my point is, my point is associations are another form that are essentially incubation not through land, but through the value chain and market delivery. Absolutely. Back to you, Brianna, for your life story. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm thinking of a really um, cheesy metaphor that I, I can't help but make. Uh, so, and I, I promise this, like, just came into my head. But <laughs> in addition, this is part of my life story as well. So I, uh, in addition to doing this work, I also weave and I think that it is truly, of course, you can't envision a fabric as one single thread. You know, that just, it's like, well, no, that's a cotton blouse. But, I mean, it's made of strands woven together over time and with great effort. And so I think you're absolutely right talking about this 
network of associations that support a farmer because farmers are part of this rich social fabric that is interdependent. Like, none of the pieces can succeed without the others, similarly to the way that you cannot weave a tapestry or garment um, with one single thread cut once. It's a- I would even argue it is a multidimensional polyvortex of a, <laughs> of a network because it relies uh, not only on the social fabric, but on the ecological fabric, on the economic mm-hmm. fabric, Absolutely. on the policy fabric. But, yes, back to you. So we see, I think we see really interesting partnerships within the field, uh, or within really the field of agriculture, but also when I'm thinking about supporting beginning farmers, particularly amongst these, um, like, food hubs. Michigan, you're exactly right. Michigan is at the forefront of this um, MSU and their regional food systems work is incredible. And we're actually we're hosting our national field school there this year um, from October 25th to the 27th in Ann Arbor, and we're going to showcase a lot of the work they're doing connecting beginning farmers to food hubs, so to people whose sole purpose is aggregation and distribution, so that, once again, a program can't be everything to everyone, but it can or incubator program can't, but we can focus on training farmers well, and we can partner with other people who are working on those kind of ripe places in other parts of the food system. So, yeah, I think the idea of network building as important for the success of beginning farmers is huge. Um, And so I think to answer your question about me um, and to fold back in the, like, network network building, weaving pieces, um, I can tell you a little bit about what drew me to this work and kind of what my path was. Um, yes, so I, I grew up in Maine, um, just outside of Portland, spent a lot of time flipping uh, rocks over, looking for crabs to this day, really good at identifying where the big crabs live under the seaweed. If that is a skill that anyone, you know, finds useful, I'm your girl. Um, I, you know, went through school in Maine, always had an affinity for the land, was gardening with my folks, um, but never really thought of you know, farming, you know, you drive through Maine and you see the landscape of, you know, collapsed farms. I grew up in somewhat of an agricultural town, but really it never clicked with me uh, until I was much older. So I, my undergraduate experience at Goucher College is where I kind of started to develop a bit more of a view about systems and how any one person interacting with large systems can be an agent for change. So I studied peace studies. Um, which was incredible. We took classes in global social justice and transformation of self and world where we were, you know, doing Tai Chi, another thing that was kind of over my head at that point, but I now appreciate much more. So um, that path led me to mediation. So I spent some time working in uh, Baltimore prisons, uh, doing reentry mediation for folks um, coming into society after a long time locked up and helping them rebuild the relationships that they'd need to be successful there. And I think that experience is really formative because it's very difficult to enter someone's life in a time of turmoil and often trauma. So I think it sort of rerouted me to pursue how to um, present myself in someone's life in a a space that was um, purely based on, I think, inspiration or vision, and so that moved me towards um, grad school, refugee work, new opportunities, things like that. And I think um, 
just working with refugees, as I mentioned before, talking about how we can best honor people's unique experiences and kind of really thinking about what the kind of lowest common denominator is of good work. So to me, how do we support people in a way that, you know, doesn't a capitalist economic system doesn't have to be raging around them for them to be supported and survive? How can we support people in good work so that they can not be alienated in their work and do something that feels valuable and do something that feels real to them and also can support their own physical bodies and their own, like, communities? And agriculture kind of answered that question for me, first in the refugee world, and then as I studied more inter- international development stuff, um, it, it echoed, you know, obviously the U.S. food system, the way that it's structured, influences the way that we deal with food all over the world. So uh, it just made too much sense not to throw my weight behind, and I, my dad's a union organizer. He was a postman for 30 years, so I really appreciate the hard work of someone who, you know, works overtime and long hours to support a family, similar to many farmers, and um, also just come from a strong belief that we can achieve more together than we can separately. So that's me waxing poetic about both my dad and my, my own story. Wow. Well, the thing that really um, sunk into my little soul spirit was about dealing with people in reentry trauma and how to be how to be as a champion of inspiration mm-hmm. and how in that moment of well, and I say that as a attendant celebrant documenter um, organizer within the Young Farmers Movement and watching inspiration illuminate and and team and momentum and sense of community and togetherness and team spirit and and hope all in a big barn dancey kind of a mojo Mm -hmm. and then watching it also be really hard for people and looking at land drama and dealing with relationship problems and dealing with the vicissitudes of capitalism and America today and how much faster global climate change is happening and how dogged are the monopoly practices and consolidating mega forces and how legalized bribery continues to allow GMOs to proceed proceed and the juggernaut to proceed and that all this optimism we felt about a food system for all of us and regional, autonomous, diverse, prosperous, healthy mojo that felt like it was moving is slow, too slow, and feeling like we need more stamina than ever, and realizing that this trauma framework is very good idea. Talk to me more about your trauma approach, please. Oh, man, I definitely don't have the degree to talk about trauma, but I, I can just say that, like, I think that this work is intoxicating because there is, like, so much hope and so much doom, like, in the same space. And I will say that, like, I wouldn't be doing it if I thought that we were going to lose. Like, I still think it's a fight worth fighting, oh, my gosh, every day, yes. I, I think, and that's why I think, you know, working in the beginning farmer space is so important because you get these people that are really convicted, very serious about wanting to shape their own lives, and it's not going to be long before 
they realize, you know, what they're up against if they aren't already aware. And so I think, like, there's something about not shying away from discussing, like, what, you know, what the challenge is, you know, what that big scary thing is in the corner that you're going to have to fight down in order to succeed. Like, I think there's, and this isn't so much like in the trauma world, but I mean, I, I've listened to more farmers than I ever wanted to just cry about the, how difficult it is to make a living as a farmer. But then I've also heard like incredible stories from young farmers about how they're doing it and making it happen. So it's like, I don't know. It's, it's such it's a complex bo- it, What do they say? Uh, if you have livestock, you have dead stock. If there's no heartbreak, it's not agriculture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's all just, it's fascinating, and I, I think all that I can do in my capacity right now is work with people to help them train the most fully equipped new farmers that they can in the hope, like in having hope and trusting that what we're moving towards is a realization of something that we see as important because we're just starting to get, you know, to fully contour what the system is that we're trying to create. And I think that as we do that, we'll, if we continue to organize parallel to our own creation of this vision, then by the time we have the vision fully articulated or partially articulated or, you know, articulated enough to move on, then we'll have the lesions of people we need to make it a reality. And I know, like, yeah, I've been accused of being pie in the sky, and I hear this all coming out of my mouth. But, I mean, something has to motivate you, and we can take these concrete daily actions, but I think that we have to remember that it's all part of a broader, like, systemic change that we want to realize. So, Well, and it's not pie in the sky. It's a six-foot woman with a piece of quiche. Now, (laughs) back to the things we need to promote in the last five minutes of our radio show, I have to promote the fact that, Agrarian Trust has an incredible symposium that I organized, hunched over my computer for six weeks. Six days of beautiful programming, films, artists, archivists, historians, Asakia, walk, amazing movies from around the country, incredible speaker, um, keynote, Mary Wood, who runs environmental law program at Oregon and is an incredible thinker about the public trust. And it's all happening in New Mexico in November from the 9th till the 17th, smack between the Kivira Coalition Conference, the Biodynamic Conference, and the Asequia Association Congreso. And you can come if you are somewhere close. And if you are somewhere listening, please will you email someone who lives close enough to Santa Fe to come about this and put it on your Facebook page because I am behind on my promotion because I do too many things. And I need your help. So please help me get the word out about the Our Land 2 Symposium in November in New Mexico. And then, Brianna, do your event need helpers or attendees or yeah, anything I mean, else you want to promote? It's it's a little bit niche. It's for the staff of Beginning Farmer Training Projects, um, October 25th through 27th in Ann Arbor. Uh, if you want to find out more, you can... Um, check out our website, uh, nesfp.org, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. Thank you all. I do think there is another beginning farmer thing happening, training program happening in New England in at NISOG, New mm-hmm. England. Yep. 
Sustainable Ag Working Group conference, mm-hmm. and that, I think, is similarly timed in this. Well, anyway, you're all just coming back to your computers, I know, because I'm getting dreadful amounts of emails from people who can't quite find this or that or need this or that or so many emails. I notice the young agrarians when they come back to their computers. It's like a whole bunch of young chickens picking at me. And thank you all for doing that. And thank you, (laughs) Brianna, for doing what you're doing. And thank you, Heritage Radio. And thank you, Kiva. And thank you all. And good night. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Oh